the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.15, Locust Soup for the Nazarite Soul. This episode, much like the last and uh, 14 others before it, continues our world-building episodes where we take a look at Catholicism as a whole and its origins in order to ensure everyone has a pair of Pope-colored glasses to use for the main show, even if they weren't previously familiar with Catholicism. If all this Catholic stuff is news to you, welcome. If you're super familiar with Catholicism already, welcome as well. In our last episode, we met Mary, a young Jewish girl whose visit by an angel more or less kicked off what you might know as the New Testament, Though, one, as always, there is some wiggle room with that, and we're going to explore here in a minute. And two, I'm choosing to be somewhat obnoxious and am preferring to use the terms First and Second Testament rather than Old and New Testament, because, frankly, the Jews could use a break, and the least I can do is present a way of framing them in a somewhat more positive light than they have historically been presented, especially by Christians. By the way, after Mary finally has her miracle baby next episode, we're going to spend episode 8.17 dividing into the often fraught to say the least relationship between Christianity and especially Catholicism and the Jewish people. But enough about next episode and the episode after that. What about this episode? Well, as I noted approximately one digression ago, the popular sense that the Second Testament narrative starts with the angel Gabriel visiting Mary to let her know she's going to be the mother of the Messiah isn't exactly spot on. Of course that message is the fundamental good news of the Gospels, and that's a pun, guys, in case you forgot that Gospel means good news. Anyways, though the news that Mary gets is the driver of the narrative, it's actually preceded by her cousin Elizabeth getting some news of her own, which she gets by way of her husband, the priest Zechariah. I'm going to go ahead and quote that whole episode here. It's described in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, which is a citation you don't actually have to jot down since it's already in the show notes for you along with other recommended scripture readings for this episode. By the way, if you don't know what I mean by show notes, uh, the way those will display depends on a number of factors, including the device and or app you use to listen to podcasts. So if you're not sure how to find them, just send me an email and I'll do my best to help guide you. That's a popularhistory at gmail.com. Popular with an E. Email plug? Check. Anyways, quote, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, 
All the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. End quote. There is so much to unpack here. I'm not going to go too deep into it, not just because I procrastinated and given myself very little time to actually put this episode together, though that's certainly a large part of it. Uh, don't worry, I do my best work in a fever dream. But also because every sacred text is something you can spend basically a whole lifetime on. And this is theoretically supposed to be an overview. So let's just hit the highlights. Zechariah is hanging out with God in the Holy of Holies at the heart of the temple. It's not just a casual thing. This seems to be the specific role I had mentioned back in episode 0.2, the one where the priest is in so deep he reportedly had a rope tied around him in case God decided to smite him because the rules were strict enough that no one else would be able to be granted access even to retrieve his body. Kind of a dying on Everest situation, I suppose. Just going in after him would have required another funeral and left two dead bodies. Now, it turns out that the whole rope rumor was probably just that, a rumor. So if you caught the original version of that episode when I presented it to you without significant caveat, then I regret to inform you that that portion of episode two has since been re-recorded because I try to keep things accurate around here. Uh, but don't worry. I'm going to keep bringing it up, because when you've got a story like that, who cares if it's true? Anyways, this is why you listen to your episodes right away, folks, so you can say you got the original, wronger version, before the fun police stepped in. Anyways, if you caught parallels between Zechariah's situation and Abraham's situation regarding, you know, having children at an advanced age, congratulations, you were uh, supposed to. Shout out episode one. And if you got strong Mary vibes when Zechariah asked how he can be sure of this, since he is an old man and his wife is old too, well, you were probably supposed to see that parallel as well. 
it's perfect homily fuel, especially since there are subtle differences in their phrasings that might help explain why Zechariah gets silenced and Mary does not. Though, do remember, we are playing a bit with chronology here. Technically, this is all happening six months before last episode, the uh, Annunciation, in case you've already forgotten. Another highlight worth noting is that baby John is called to be a Nazarite from birth, much like Samson of old. Shout out episode three. Uh, no wine or those pesky wine-adjacent grapes near him, thank you very much, and no contact with corpses, if you please. He's also going to be very hairy. Remember that uh, no shaving is a Nazarite vow thing, not just a Samson thing. After the Nazarite stuff, we've got John's calling to, quote, make ready a people prepared for the Lord, end quote, in case you are wondering about the origin of John's ministry or the title for episode 0.13. There's also the name John itself, which means God is merciful. There might be something worth reflecting on, with Zechariah wondering how he can be confident that God's going to be merciful, resulting in him getting muted. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. Okay, so for the sake of taking a breath before we dive in, with a full immersion, of course, we're going to go ahead and keep Zechariah on mute and keep one eye on the whole Messiah thing this is all clearly pointing to, Shout out episode 5, while we talk baptism. Let's grab our uh, catechism glossary for the short version of it. Quote, Baptism, the first of the seven sacraments, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments, because it unites us with Christ, who died for our sins, and rose for our justification. Baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist constitute the sacraments of initiation, by which a believer receives the remission of original and personal sin, begins a new life in Christ and the Holy Spirit, and is incorporated into the Church, the body of Christ. The rite of baptism consists in immersing the candidate in water, or pouring water on the head, while pronouncing the invocation of the Most Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. End quote. Okay, well, uh, sorry. I thought that was going to be a lot shorter. My bad. Uh, look, physically, baptism is either getting water poured on you or getting dunked in water. And quick trigger warning for violence, but when you see an either-or setup when describing a core theological concept, you can unfortunately assume blood has been spilled over the issue. A fair amount of blood, actually, in this case. Now, spiritually... Christians consider baptism a washing away of sins through the power of Christ. How does that work when uh, Christ himself was baptized? Oh, don't you worry, that's going to get its own episode. Episode 0.19 for those keeping track at home. Historically, while it's a bit murky, but suffice to say, baptism predates Christianity. The most similar Jewish practice is Tevila. Apologies for pronunciation, but that's a... Uh, full-body immersion in a sort of a natural spring situation called a mikvah. And yes, if phrases like natural spring situation are giving you the sense that I'm well over my skis here, well, you aren't wrong, and I welcome any corrections. In broad strokes, tevila was a part of conversion, which is where baptism, certainly for adults, plays a role in Christianity. This ritual came about during everyone's favorite proving ground, Second Temple Judaism. Now, I'm 
already kicking myself for specifying, certainly for adults here, as infant baptism is highly controversial. But you guessed it, I'm skipping that too for now, because I want to talk about the Mandeans. Simply put, the Mandeans are a sect that self-identify as followers of John the Baptist, though notably without the uh, Jesus part. They also claim status as the OG monotheists, predating even Judaism by their reckoning. All this is quite contested, and as you can imagine, Christians tend to show John as pointing the way to his cousin Jesus. But in the end, the Mandeans persist, though in a more scattered form with fewer numbers since the 2003 invasion of their principal homeland, Iraq. They now number in the tens of thousands. They are also, by some accounts, the last surviving Gnostic sect, though as near as I can tell, that count does not include their own counting, so take that with a grain of salt, and, you know, if you happen to come across any Mandeans, maybe, you know, just don't be a dick to them. Okay, so Zechariah's eyeing me frantically. It's been six months since he was put on mute, and he has so much to say. Okay, he actually doesn't have that much to say right now. He'll say more soon, uh, once this all calms down. But for now, he just needs to name this kid so that he can be uncursed. But uh, first, it's time for Mary and her cousin to have some close relative gushing time. Quote, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. End quote. Now, attentive listeners may have picked up on more origins of the prayer known as the Hail Mary in Elizabeth's greeting, following up nicely to the parts that we got from the angel Gabriel last week, which may have gone almost completely unmarked at the time. Uh, either way, everyone can appreciate Mary's banger of a canticle in response. At least, I hope you can appreciate it if you enter into any sort of a clerical state or religious life within Catholicism, because you'll be seeing it at least daily in that case. Say it louder for the prosperity gospel people in the back. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. There are downright Marxist interpretations to be had here, 
but I'll save that for a deep dive into liberation theology I've got planned somewhere down the road. It's been requested. And now we're told Mary hung out with Elizabeth and Zechariah for about three months until Zechariah's own opportunity for a top-tier canticle comes along. Quote, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praised be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. End quote. Now, I don't know if you'd think that the Canticle of Zechariah holds up to the Magnificat, but I will say that it too is a daily staple as another entry in the breviary, a.k.a. the Liturgy of the Hours, a.k.a. something else we'll dive into later. Now that we've even got John the Baptist on the scene, surely our table is set and we're ready to begin the life of Christ next time, right? First off, come on, keep up. This is the Catholic perspective, so life begins at conception, not merely at birth, which is why the holy infants are jumping around saying hi in utero. Uh, secondly, we need to talk a bit more about some other things going on right at this moment, philosophically, spiritually, however you want to put it. Specifically, we need to talk about Gnosticism and Mithraism. Oh, and uh, Zoroastrianism, too, apparently, which I thought I had covered. We need to look at those uh, non-Jewish sources or potential sources for Christianity. Basically, Zoroastrianism was the state religion of Persia, starting in at least the 6th century BC, with possible roots stretching much further back. Much like every other topic we've covered, there is some variance between the traditional Zoroastrian perspective, which 
has the prophet Zoroaster himself kicking around 258 years before Alexander. Now, Alexander conquered Persia in around uh, 330 BC. It was a multi-year process that we're rounding, and the specifics are probably not accurate anyways. But either way, that gives a, uh, a year of 588 for Zoroaster. Now, Solomon's temple, the first temple, was destroyed in 587 BC. So uh, we've got Zoroaster flourishing right as the Babylonian exile is kicking off for the Jews, if you want to synchronize your traditional account watches. When it comes to scholars, they actually tend to push back Zoroastrianism, which was a bit of a surprise for me since I'm used to them moving timelines forward rather than, uh, than back. They are up to their old tricks, though, because they decide that uh, Zoroaster was actually, you know, a community of uh, influencers rather than just one guy. So there's still some familiarity there. Anyways, speaking of scholars, the reason we're taking a look at Zoroastrianism right now is because they can't help but notice that around the time of the exile, a lot of things kind of stirred up in the Jewish milieu um, and got a lot more emphasized. Things like uh, free will, belief in the Messiah, the idea of heaven and hell, and angels and demons and such. These things were already around, of course, to an extent, but uh, their emphasis is much greater in the post-exilic period. As a refresher and clarification, uh, the Babylonians who destroyed the temple and carried the Jews into exile, they weren't Zoroastrians themselves, but the Persians further east were. And ultimately, it was the Persians that ended the exile after they went ahead and conquered the Babylonians. From there, Judea was under new management. It was a part of the Persian Empire, including the state-sponsored Zoroastrianism of the Persian Empire, up until Alexander the Great came along and took charge of, well, everything, basically, a couple centuries later. Now, I decided to make right my earlier omission of Zoroastrianism today because Especially with its good-evil duality, Zoroastrianism is important for understanding where Gnosticism comes from, and we definitely want to delve into Gnosticism here. So, by way of brief introduction, Gnosticism is the belief that the physical world is evil, and certain special folk have special access to a secret knowledge, or gnosis, about the way the world really is, most startlingly with the, uh, revelation that the creator god is actually a false demigod of some type, that if we can reach beyond the physical world, we can reach out to the stronger and more good and all-around better non-physical god beyond that. Did I mention the Gnostics thought the physical world is bad? Because they did. For the Gnostics, ascending beyond the physical world was something both uh, normal to want and possible to achieve, at least for a special few. Now, quick quiz. Uh, can you name any Greek philosophers that kind of hated the physical world? I'm guessing if your list has at least one name on it, that name is Plato. And if your list has a bunch of names on it, Plato may well be showing up more than once, at least in the form of his followers with vaguely similar names like Plotinus, the founder of Neoplatonism. Now, uh, Plotinus is cool and all, but he's a few centuries too late to be of direct interest to us right now. We're looking mainly at Plato right now because of the apparent influence of Plato on Gnosticism. Plato took one look at the physical world and basically concluded, nope. The forms, the uh, non-physical things that inspire our knowledge, or at least what we think is our knowledge, that's where it's at. 
and the Gnostics agreed. Chairness is in. Chairs are out. The world of forms, a.k.a. the world of ideas, is the perfect and, well, the uh, ideal world. The ugly, messy, smelly, material world is the lesser creation of a lesser god. And this, at its core, is the Gnostic solution to the problem of evil. Now, more on Gnosticism and more on the problem of evil later. Uh, for right now, let's just go ahead and continue our little uh, incomplete roundup of notions floating around as BC, that is, uh, before Christ, turns into AD. That's uh, Anno Domini, Latin for year of our Lord, not uh, English for after death, as folk etymology would have it. Our next stop is the uh, cult of Mithras. And considering Mithra is a figure in Zoroastrianism, in some ways we haven't really strayed too far. But we're not really looking for connections to Zoroastrianism on this tour. We're uh, looking for connections to Christianity. And uh, Mithraism is rich soil there. Popular from the 1st to the 4th century, the parallels between Mithraism and early Christianity of the day would have been clear enough to folks choosing which cult to join. And you would have had to choose, because the Christian cult banned participation in other cults, even if Mithraism wasn't necessarily so picky. Now, their very nature as secret cults is an obvious parallel. Christianity was illegal, reason enough to do their thing in secret. For Mithraism, it doesn't seem so much that it was illegal, so much as they just liked the aesthetic, I guess. A food was central to both, and the word sacrifice was thrown around. In Mithraism, it was centered around a bull, and in early Christianity, a lamb. Although we have a lot of their underground worship sites, uh, known as Mithraea, we don't actually have a lot of information on the actual practice of Mithraism, given their nature as a secret society. In some cases, we do have member lists, which generally point to male-only membership as the norm. And we know there were apparently seven ranks of membership, which is a number that naturally raises some eyebrows to those familiar with Judeo-Christian numerology, where seven is quite significant. In fact, my mind does keep coming back to the seven stages of holy orders in medieval Christianity that culminated in the priesthood, even more so considering the highest rank within Mithraism is called Father. Now, I don't want to overplay the similarities between Christianity of the first couple centuries and Mithraism, Popular with the armies, it seemed Mithraism was more of a social club centered around feasting with ordinary food, especially fruit, uh, cherries in particular apparently, being the standard. Regular utensils and tables abound. The seven thing appears more to be a nod to the, uh, the planets and the sun. In the end, Mithraism doesn't seem to have been a monolith, which, I mean, Fair enough. Christianity at the time wasn't exactly monolithic either. Mithraic practices likely varied from place to place. Uh, for instance, that uh, no-women rule appears to have not been universal. Alright, so for once I'm looking at the clock and we're not quite that pressed for time yet, so let's go ahead and throw in another popular pagan to Christian connection theory or two for good measure. How about Easter? Is the name of Easter stolen from the Assyrian-slash-Babylonian goddess Ishtar, which the internet post you saw proclaiming this connection both confidently and inaccurately asserts that it was actually pronounced Easter? Well, no. First off, English is the only language that weirdly calls Pascha Easter, 
like how pineapples are called anise in basically every other language, or like how uh, in America we call what should obviously be called hand egg, we call that football. Enough about that. Let's go back to the roots of the word Easter and see if it's connected to Ishtar, which would be significant considering Ishtar is one of the specific baddies of the Bible. No less an authority than St. Bede the Venerable, the 8th century monastic scholar extraordinaire, gives a pagan goddess as the source of the word for Easter, explaining the follow-up in his roundup of Anglo-Saxon month names. Quote, Eustermonoth has a name which is now pronounced Paschal Month, and which was once called after a goddess of theirs named Easter, in whose honor feasts were celebrated in that month. Now they designated that Paschal season by her name, by the time-honored name of the old observance. Now there is an undeniable whiff of scandal here, assuming you also consider the names of the days of the week to be scandalous, since those names also tend to derive from ancient deities. Now that said, if you want to go beyond general goddessery and make the Ishtar connection specifically, you're going to have to engage in some folk etymology, which is not a thing I necessarily recommend. In fact, I just don't recommend it. There is nothing in scholarship to connect these two goddesses, and the theory seems to trace back primarily to a 19th century Protestant pastor looking to root up the celebration of Easter as yet another pagan tradition. Protestants who see paganism everywhere in Catholicism are, I dare say, uh, right at times, but it may be helpful to note that these are pagan bones that have been baptized. In the words of the Ghostbusters, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Alright, one more quick one for the road. Jesus. Dionysus. Both associated with wine. Both from the east of Rome. Both uh, made women do crazy things. We might explore the Jesus-slash-Dionysus thing a little bit more later. Suffice to say, I don't think it holds near as much water. Oh, look, that's a, that's actually wine now. Um, I don't think it holds near as much wine as my all-time favorite Jesus theory, namely that Jesus was a Roman psyop. And yes, yes, look forward to that. Okay, so let's go ahead and sum up. There is something to most of these theories, at least enough to keep scholars working and tongues wagging. Obviously, the traditional response is to call poppycock and dismiss all of this out of hand. You're free to do that, or you're free to take some and leave others, as I do, without too much concern, or you can go all in on every theory you hear. Either way, at least now you can participate in your next syncretism-themed cocktail party, pointing out that it's fair to say that some aspects of Christianity can trace back to aspects of a strain of Mithraism, but we don't have enough evidence for firm conclusions either way. That early Christians spoke of the parallels as a kind of demonic mockery. That, of course, our friends, the modern scholars, like to point out that a bit of lifting of practices from one to the other would have made things go down easier. That, and I should caveat this with a note that scholars are absolutely not unanimous here, but it certainly seems that uh, December 25th was significant as a solar feast with the Emperor Aurelian proclaiming December 25th, 274, as a, basically the a birthday of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. You'll be the uh, life of that party, I'm sure. 
And if you want to know why December 25th is a significant day in the Christian calendar, I mean, you probably already, you know, know, but I like this setup, so I'm keeping it and you can't stop me. Then tune in next solemnity, December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, for episode 0.16, The Whole World Being at Peace. Now, I forgot to do thank yous last time around, so a belated but doubly sincere thank you to my family for putting up with the time I put into the show, especially Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History. Thanks as well for her vocal talents last episode. Similar thanks for vocal talents from last episode go to Mr. Andy Black, and a thank you as well to Walter Mitchell, talent scout extraordinaire. And as always, thank you to Billy Edwards and Tony Barbudo for audio consultations. And a special thank you to our logo designer, Russ. Thanks as well to you, the listeners. Let's be honest, I probably still would be doing this without you, because, well, I enjoy doing it. But I do get a rush with every download, so spread the word. Until December 8th, God bless you all.